Hello everyone and welcome back. Or if you're a first time listener, welcome. My name is Valerie and I'm a senior in the Hutchins program here at Sonoma State. Thank you for tuning into my podcast and hopefully by the end of it, you will have learned something new that you can pass on to the people in your life, your coworkers, your kids, your pets, or hey, maybe someone you just met on the bus today. As the name suggests, I'm going to be talking to you about wildfires and their direct impact on people. But first, Here's just a little overview on wildfires in general. Wildfires, as we know, are just one of the many effects of climate change. Over the past few years, we have seen an immense growth in wildfires throughout the nation, and just last year, it seems as though the entirety of the West Coast was up in flames. In 2020, five of the six largest fires on record burned in California and Oregon and saw historical levels of wildfire spread and damage. Wildfires across the West led to weeks-long periods of unhealthy air quality levels for millions of people, as stated by the S2ES, the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. The reason wildfires are becoming harder to suppress is because, due to climate change, our environment is becoming warmer and drier, qualities that wildfires thrive on. As stated by the C2ES, more than 80% of U.S. wildfires are caused by people. You guys remember hearing about that couple and their gender reveal that for some reason they thought it was a good idea to involve pyrotechnics and that massive fire it caused? It burned 10,000 acres. That's about 13,200 football fields. To any of my listeners who may be planning a gender reveal soon, there's absolutely nothing wrong with a simple balloon and colored confetti. So now that we have some wildfire knowledge under our belts, let's start delving deeper into the subject. When you think of wildfires, what does your mind immediately go to? Maybe you said destruction, burning houses, burning forests, all of which are true. But what about people? There are people who own those houses, people who may live in those forests that are burning down. There's a quote from Sonia Houston that I feel really embodies the whole theme that I'm trying to capture in this episode, and it states, There is a sense that everyone is created equal. Roaring wind-driven infernos don't discriminate between the structures or people in their past. After the fires are out, however, it's a different story. In this episode, I will be discussing wildfires and their direct impact on people. I'll be discussing topics such as the effect of wildfires on low-income households, how wildfires disproportionately affect people of color, the health impacts related to wildfires, and the process of prescribed fires, also known as controlled or tribal burnings. I will also have an interview segment where I interview my older sister who has been evacuated multiple times due to wildfires. My goal in this podcast is to dig deeper on this ongoing climate crisis issue. Wildfires are often only discussed on the surface level, and I hope to educate my listeners on the other issues at hand. We discussed in class how people often can't conceptualize the idea of climate change because it isn't something they have physically gone through. Well, remember when the recent fires made the sky turn an unnatural red-orange color, or when ash was falling from the sky and made it even harder to see at the end of the street? or turning on the TV to constantly see news of a new fire that has broken out. These are examples of physical changes our Earth is going through that are now affecting all of us on a personal level. So you think that as a society of people who are all going through the same thing, every person would be given the same aid and resources to fight this climate issue? If this was the perfect world, the answer would be yes. But sadly, in a society that prides itself on equality, there are people out there whose health is being affected, whose homes have burned down, who have lost all their valuables, and then who have also lost the means to support not only themselves but their families as well. 
These are the things I'm going to be discussing in this episode, so stay tuned, and here we go. Quick side note before I go on. I apologize if you hear any loud footsteps, random conversations, or any miscellaneous noise that you wouldn't expect to be in a podcast. Zoom University has caused my workspace to now move into my bedroom, and I live in a very noisy household. So once again, I'm sorry, and let's get back to the topic. As I mentioned earlier, low-income households are one of those groups of people who are being disproportionately impacted due to wildfires. Why is that? Wouldn't wildfires affect everyone the same? Well, as we're going to learn throughout this episode, the main reason why wildfires are disproportionately affecting low-income households or people of color the most is because these groups of people do not have the same access to aid and resources in comparison to wealthier white individuals. As stated in the article, The Unequal Vulnerability of Communities of Color to Wildfire by Ian P. Davies, Ryan D. Hugo, James C. Robertson, and Philip S. Levine, the authors state, Poor households often cannot afford to pay for fire mitigation services like tree cutting and removal of fine fuels. They also state, While wealthier residents may be disinclined to remove environmental amenities like trees, they're more likely to have fire insurance and the community firefighting resources needed to extinguish a fire. To me, I just feel that the amount of money someone makes should not be a factor in their safety. It's almost as if you have to pay to be safe or if there's a fire, you kind of have to pay to stay alive in that sense. Low-income households do not have the means to protect themselves or their families in those situations, so shouldn't someone do something? Shouldn't the government feel the need to step in and want to help them? This actually reminds me of the fires that broke out in SoCal. And I think I read somewhere that Kim Kardashian, of all people, hired a private, private firefighters to protect her home. She has that privilege to do so. Low-income households do not, and therefore they have a higher chance to not only lose all their belongings, but possibly their lives as well. As stated previously, Low-income households are not always able to afford things such as tree trimmings. Davies, Hugo, Robertson, and Levine go even further by stating, families who rent cannot receive as much federal assistance than homeowners. So imagine that. Mostly low-income households rent homes because they cannot afford to buy a home. So not only are low-income households in danger of losing their homes by not being able to afford the processes that will potentially keep their homes safe, they're also given even fewer options for resources and aid simply because they rent their homes. Do the problems stop there? Of course not. In the article I've been mentioning, the authors state, these disparities become very clear after the 2017 wildfires in Sonoma County, California, where price gouging on rentals worsened an already dire housing shortage. Now, if you're like me, I was unaware of what exactly price gouging was and did what every person does when they don't know something. I asked my mom. For those of you who don't know, the example my mom used was, in the beginning of the pandemic when people were buying items in bulk, some people would buy these items and then simply resell them at an outrageous price because they knew people were in need and knew people would buy them. That's what price gouging is. And honestly, it shocks me to hear that people would do that to homes for those people in need. The fact that people who had lost their homes due to these fires could not even rent a new place because the rent prices were being shut up. It honestly gets me mad and puts me at a loss for words. One aspect we haven't really discussed yet is transportation. While I've mentioned how low-income households do not have the means to protect their homes from wildfires, 
what happens when they're trying to evacuate from the wildfire. This is another way low-income households are disproportionately affected because even evacuating becomes a challenge. These families may not have a car in order to flee the fire. They also may not have the money for gas. So either way, they're stuck. How do we help support these families? Would it even be enough? One article I want to discuss from NPR.org called Low-Income Communities Struggle to Recover After a Wildfire by Sam Harnett. Harnett discusses the subject of aid being given to families in need. This family he mentioned had lost everything due to a wildfire. FEMA, the Federal Emergency Mandate Agency, granted them money, around $21,000, but it still wasn't enough. The family had used that money to repair their well so they could have clean drinking water. FEMA also provided them with a trailer to live in temporarily, but only for 18 months. That is not enough time to bounce back after losing everything. Is this the best we can do to support people who are losing everything due to wildfires? So in a related topic, now I'm going to be discussing how people of color are also disproportionately impacted due to wildfires and are some of the most vulnerable people. A very important quote from the article I mentioned earlier, the unequal vulnerability of communities of color to wildfire, states, when it comes to disasters, Differences in vulnerability can affect the magnitude and duration of impact, like the loss of property, livelihood, or services. And it is people of color who are most vulnerable to these impacts, communities such as Black, Hispanic, and Native American. To give you a better example of how greatly people of color are affected, the authors use an example about Hurricane Katrina. Davies, Hugo, Robertson, and Levine state, for instance, when Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans, the impact to life and property were disproportionately borne by African-American communities. Damaged areas comprised 46% Black people versus 26% in undamaged areas, and 84% of missing people were Black, in a city that is only 68% Black. As I mentioned earlier, low-income households and people of color tend to lack the resources needed in order to recover from these situations. Wildfire vulnerability is a term often used to describe not only the exposure to a hazard, but also the adaptability in order to recover and learn from that hazard. Due to the social and ecological nature of hazards that I've discussed, we have seen that some people do not adapt or recover as well during hazards such as wildfires. For example, one reason that people of color are disproportionately impacted because of wildfires is due to language. What does language have to do with keeping yourself safe when you're in a fire? Well, it has been shown that people of color who may not speak or understand English that well have extreme difficulty in recovering from these hazards. Davies, Hugo, Robertson, and Levine state that in 2014, as a massive fire emerged in eastern Washington, language barriers preventing Hispanic farm workers from receiving evacuation notification from authorities, and the only Spanish radio station in this region never received the emergency information. Why was the only Spanish radio station in that region not provided the emergency information? And why were there no authorities on hand who were able to translate what was going on to the farm workers? Along with the language barrier, a general distrust of people of color with authorities also plays a factor. Because of this major societal issue, people of color are less likely to feel safe and protected from authorities. Even if people of color do not generally live in these high fire areas, they are not given the tools to adapt or protect themselves in areas where wildfires do occur. Native Americans, for example, 
only live in these high fire areas because they are placed there. The reservations that Native Americans are moved to are very prone to wildfires. Most Native Americans have a method to maintain and lessen the amounts of wildfires that I will discuss later, but their knowledge is often looked down upon by government as not being real signs. These are just some of the many ways that people of color are also disproportionately impacted due to wildfires. And now it's time for the interview segment. I am here with my guest, my older sister, who I will allow her to introduce herself. And here she goes. Hey there, uh, I'm Angie Rodriguez, like Valley said, her older sister, uh, 25 years old, been in the county since 2013. And yeah, that's really all there's to know about her. She's kind of lame, but we'll go with it. Anyways, we're here to talk about her experiences and her direct experiences with these wildfires. So Angie, if you don't mind, what area are you currently living in? Yeah, so I currently live in Santa Rosa. I've been here for... Two and a half years in Santa Rosa in particular. Uh, lived in downtown for a year. Now I'm in Valley, which is closer to Annadale State Park. Uh, before that, I in Broner Park for two years and uh, the top for a year. Okay, nice, nice. And obviously, I know this about you since you're my older sister. She also went to Sonoma State. Do you mind just telling us uh, what year you enrolled and what year you graduated? Totally. So I... My first year at Sonoma was 2013, and then I graduated 2018. Uh, I have a business degree with concentrations in marketing and wine business strategy. Okay, nice, nice. And in all those years, how many times have you actually been evacuated due to wildfires up there? Oof. Feels like every year, but there was the first big fire in 2017, to say. I was in Roller Park, and I was on standby a few hours, but eventually did get evacuated. Then there, we kind of got evacuated due to like air pollution from fires up in Chico. But the most recent one, so 2020, I got evacuated. Uh, the fire was about three miles away from my house. That's terrifying. Okay, that's, yeah. yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. So, and where did you evacuate to? So the first fire, the 2017 fire, I evacuated uh, back to my family's home in San Jose, our family's home. <laughs> um, the second fire, which wasn't really local, but local enough, uh, didn't have to evacuate that one. And then this most recent one uh, evacuated out to Burnville, which is in West County of like Sonoma County. Okay, nice. Did you evacuate with any other people? Yeah, so, um, when was it? The first fire evacuated my boyfriend at the time. Uh, I was wondering what room happened to be from San Jose as well. So, even though we weren't technically all in the same car, we all evacuated to the same general area. Um, and then the most recent fire, I evacuated with my boyfriend at the time. Okay, nice, nice. And was it kind of like, you had to evacuate wherever you were, like, quickly, like, go to your house, grab whatever you could. Like, how much time were you, like, actually given to evacuate? Yeah. Um, so the first one, I actually had a lot of fair warning. So where the first fire happened, it's up towards, like, San 
it, I'm not, I can't remember if it started in Santa Rosa, but it was closer to like where Safari West is. So I was working at Safari West and know people who were working in that. So I had a fair warning before most of the money did. So at that point, the fire started around 10 p.m. And I was aware of it around midnight. And we didn't evacuate until about 5 in the morning. Just out of precaution, we eventually ended up having to get evacuated. But luckily, we beat it to the so. So you say you didn't, like, evacuate till 5 a.m., so you were just kind of, like, on standby? Yeah, so packed up all the valuables um, and just listened to police scan it to make sure the ga- cars were filled up with gas. It was, like, super eerie, like, uh, you like you know this thing's happening while most people are asleep. That's terrifying. And do you know, like, did you, I feel like I would have heard of you lost anything, but do you, did you lose anything or do you know of anyone who, like, lost things in due to the wildfires? Yeah, uh, the first one, or just, like, in general? Just in general. Yeah, so definitely, I know more than a handful of people who lost their homes. Uh, Safari West luckily didn't lose much, but some property got burned. Uh, my current boss owns a few wineries. He lost a few wineries. Um, yeah, mostly just property and home. Um, my apologies if anything got cut off. I did not know that there was a time cap on these. So back, picking up where we left off. Obviously, you did discuss, like, the people that you know that have lost things due to wildfires. Do you know if they've rebuilt or been able to replace those things that they've lost? Yeah, um, some people, uh, definitely have rebuilt. I feel like, unfortunately, this wildfire hit a lot of people who didn't have either insurance at all or the proper insurance so and dealing with the magnitude of homes lost or lost sometimes even with insurance it's taking a while like i know houses that are still getting rebuilt from the 2017 fire so no and that's funny that you said that i literally was just in one of my other segments i was talking about about how low-income households are usually the ones who like feel these impacts the most because not only do they not have the means to, like, protect their houses, like, tree trimmings, bush removals in order to, like, help protect their houses. I also learned uh, that renters are not given the same federal assistance that homeowners would have, which it kind of sucks because it's almost as if, like, you have to, like, pay to stay safe. Where, like, I feel like when it's there's lives at stake, that isn't something that, like, a person, like, who makes a certain amount of money like should have to deal with but yeah right you, you kind of broke up there but I think I got the gist of it yeah and so obviously you've had a bunch of different jobs living up there can you explain uh-huh. what was like the different ro- responsibilities and pressures that you might have been under in those different jobs and like the things that you had to do while these fires were going on Totally. So, like I mentioned, in the first fire, I was working up at Safari West, which is an African animal wildlife preserve and also a tent camp. So, look, not luckily, but it's like I worked with people mostly, not animals, and taking care of the animals was the biggest priority. Um, so, I didn't really have any pressure there. The only pressure I really felt was the lack of a job, I guess. I was out of work for a few months, but I went back to work making sure that no one was on property because it was still getting re- rebuilt and to, like, create 
an environment that was safe for people to come back to. So just making sure that I was vigilant, uh, answering, I was kind of like off the liaison between the property and people calling office to be like, what happened to the animals and all this. So that, I guess that was pressure. Uh, but that, I feel like Sonoma County has gone through this enough times that even with the recent fires, everyone first response, at least people I've worked with is, uh, take care of yourself, take care of your family. I work in the beer industry now and they're like, beer will be around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is the most important thing. Okay. And in this last like two minutes we have here, is there anything that you think at least Sonoma County can do differently to maybe just help people in the event that these wildfires continue because they are because of climate change? So what do you think could be done differently? Oh, there's so much that can be done differently. And that people, it's, it's a matter of just getting educated and being aware of just global environmental factors, but then also what you can do. It's, there was a fire that happened probably no more than two miles away from my house that I could see up in the hill that was started because the trailer was improper to their truck, so it created a spark. And because we don't get rain that often in the global warming, the spark starts off a fire. And then you also have to deal with arson, arsonists. And mm-hmm. it's just getting people educated. And um, yeah, that's just a big thing. Yeah. And I agree 110%. This class that I'm in is discussing issues like that. So I just want to say thank you for helping me in this episode. And thank you for helping to educate my listeners on really just what you had to go through and what I can only imagine that so many other people have had to go through. Oh, totally. And just want to finish off by saying that I got really lucky. And even though I've dealt with it, so many people dealt with it in so many worse ways. So yeah, if you have people up in Sonoma County that you care about, make sure to check in on them August through November. (laughs) Okay. Bye-bye. Talk to you later. Bye. So far, we've discussed many ways in which wildfires impact people, both socially and ecologically. One of the more common ways in which people are impacted due to wildfires is through health. As we all probably remember from the fires last year, whether the fires were occurring specifically in our cities or cities nearby, the ash falling from the sky made the air quality very unsafe to breathe in. Not only that, but the inhalation of ash could irritate our lungs, but it was also a very strong irritant toward the eyes. As stated in the article, wildfire smoke exposure under climate change impact on respiratory health of affected communities by Colleen E. Reed and Melissa May Meistas. The authors state that asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease are just some of the many health impacts felt by populations that have been exposed to wildfires. They also state that health cost estimates of smoke exposure range from 11 to 12 billion per year. As we can see, wildfires are hurting people financially in more than one way. I feel like a common question I've asked throughout this episode is, what can we do? What are some strategies that we can use to potentially help reduce these health impacts that people are going through? Well, if we attempt to tackle this climate change issue head on, one clear answer would be to implement more fire management practices. By attempting to lessen the amount of wildfires in general, it would then kind of lead to this domino effect. Less wildfires would then mean less people suffering from smoke inhalation health impacts. 
But in order to do that, our society would need to engage in more of these management practices, such as prescribed fire, a topic that I'll be discussing in my next segment. If we want to tackle this issue on a surface level, Reed and Meister state in their article, clean air shelters and portable air cleaners may reduce individual exposure to wildfire smoke. While these options could also work, we would have to make sure that everybody have equal access to these resources in order to stay safe. There would be no point in making these resources available if not everybody was able to obtain them, such as people of color and low-income households. On more of a mental health level, one article I read titled, Effects of West Coast Wildfires Go Beyond Evacuation Air Quality by Lee Hopper. Hopper quotes April Thames, a USC Associate Professor of Psychology and Psychiatry, and states, The dangerous air quality creates another risk in addition to COVID-19. Being stuck indoors with orange and gray smoky skies poses an even greater risk for feelings of despair, hopelessness, and depressed mood. It honestly feels as though these wildfires last year could not have come at a worse time, because not only were we trapped indoors because of the fires, we'd also been shut in since March due to COVID-19. The feeling of hopelessness was something many of us could probably relate to. There wasn't much for us to do except wait in our homes and hope for things to get better. N95 masks were doing two jobs in one during that time, not only protecting our lungs from smoke inhalation, but also keeping us safe from possible COVID-19 germs. While I'm hopeful that COVID-19 will go away soon and hopeful that we'll have less wildfires in the future, it still might be safe to go on Amazon or swing by your local Home Depot and stock up on some of these N95 masks. Because there are still those few people out there who aren't taking climate change seriously and who also aren't taking COVID-19 seriously, who might just ruin it for all of us. Stay safe and wear a mask. Protect yourself and the people around you. And finally, we have made it to our last segment here in my podcast episode. This last segment will be focusing on prescribed fire, also known as tribal burnings or controlled burnings, and ideas that I raised in my previous segments. The idea of prescribed fires really interested me and caught my attention last semester when it was brought up and discussed in my Core D class. So at this point, you're probably wondering, Valerie, what is a prescribed fire? What is a prescribed burning? Well, as stated in the article, we're not doing enough prescribed fire in western United States to mitigate wildfire risk by Crystal A. Colden. Colden describes prescribed burnings as the intentional ignition of controlled fire, which is also referred to as prescribed fire or controlled burning in the U.S. Prescribed fire not only reduces the biomass available to burn in a subsequent uncontrolled fire, it also supports carbon sequestration, facilitates ecological resilience, and is critical in restoring ecological function in regions where decades of fire exclusion push fire-adapted ecosystems outside of their historic range of variability and degraded such function. This is a process that is deeply rooted in indigenous knowledge. In more simpler terms, it is traditional knowledge in which Native Americans created these controlled fires to help burn off excess plants and shrubs something that is typically fuel for these giant wildfires. By creating these controlled fires preemptively, we are lessening the risk for these giant wildfires to break out and potentially burn more land. So what are some of the benefits of controlled fires? As stated previously, not only can they be used as a tool to prevent future wildfires, but it can also be a source to restore ecological function. The first time I heard about these controlled fires, I thought, wow, that's amazing. 
finally something good that our government's doing to help prevent the spread of wildfires. But, of course, that was not the case. Because controlled fires are tribal traditions deeply rooted in Native American culture, a good majority of these fires are done by non-federal funded groups. Colden states, well, 70% of all prescribed fire was completed primarily by non-federal entities in the southeastern U.S. The Bureau of Indian Affairs, BIA, was the only federal agency to substantially increase prescribed fire use, potentially associated with increased tribal self-governance. One reason that the government doesn't intend to fund more of this practice is because of differences in science. I learned in my core class that the government doesn't often believe in science used by Native American tribes because it isn't the science that they're used to. Many Native American tribes knew that climate change is coming and could see the signs before many other traditional scientists, and that was through the use of their traditional ecological knowledge. By using the knowledge and methods passed on through generations of their tribe, their scientific methods are just as reliable, and yet our government still can't fully support their methods. The reason I felt it was important to bring up this method of controlled burning is because I truly believe if our government were to fund this and implement this more regularly, there would be less wildfires in our future. Not only would it be a celebration of Native American culture, we would also be learning about their science and everyone would benefit from it. Of course, there are some drawbacks and some negative opinions about controlled fires that I would like to discuss. One reason that people feel controlled fires may not be the best route to take is because they do produce smoke something that I mentioned in my health segment that can negatively impact health. They also have the possibility to escape and create a large fire, something though that happens very, very rarely. The way I see it, when looking at controlled fires versus wildfires, both will produce smoke in the end. The question is, how much smoke would you rather have? Would you rather have the entire West Coast experiencing wildfires all at the same time and therefore creating that much smoke? or one controlled fire every now and then, just producing smoke in small sections at a time. And then, tackling the opinion that a controlled fire may escape, if done correctly, that is very unlikely to happen. As long as the process is done by Native Americans who have this method deeply rooted in their traditions and culture. Controlled fires should not be attempted by those who do not know the process and therefore do not know the means on how to control it. Of course, This is just one idea. Wildfires will continue to directly impact people and other things as well until we as a society come together to tackle this climate change issue. Throughout this episode, you have hopefully learned how wildfires directly impact people. We discussed the impact on low-income households, the impact on people of color, health impacts, and prescribed controlled fires. We were also able to speak to someone, my sister, and learn about her experiences firsthand dealing with wildfires in Sonoma County. Thank you for taking the time for listening to my podcast, and I hope you learned something new. Spread the word. Climate change is real, and we must all do what we can in order to help each other in this world we're living in.